You're listening to the Mount Pleasant Podcast. To learn more about our church, visit us online at www.mpbc.church. We hope today's message encourages and inspires you. This morning, we're going to be talking about hiding and seeking. And I, I love that, uh, I like the title. I was, I was hoping as people glanced up at the church sign as they're driving up and down 421 this week, they'd be like, this Sunday, hide and seek, Mount Pleasant Baptist Church. And just have this picture in their head of like all these people, old and young, just crawling under chairs and running around. Somebody up here on the stage is going, one, two. And I think, man, that must be a fun church to go to. They're playing hide and seek on Sunday. So, but, uh, but we are going to be talking about how we as believers can be having a life that is a hide-and-seek life, if you will. But uh, to get back into the series this week, in Colossians 1, Paul, he talks about, well, first off, he starts off thanking God for this church that's been founded in this, really, this ideological crossroads. There's so many philosophies that's passing through this region that was a heavy commercial region, and it began to infiltrate their beliefs do I need something more than Jesus? Maybe I do. Maybe I need to add this philosophy of the world. Maybe I need to add this practice. And Paul writes saying, no, no, it's Jesus alone. That's it. Jesus alone. And then he goes on in, verse, in, uh, in Colossians 2, and he says that you have received Christ by faith that you've been resurrected or raised in faith, and that in the same way that you received Christ, which is by faith, you are to walk in Him. And we're going to talk about what that looks like a little bit more here in just a moment. But ultimately, what we're going to be getting into is walking in Him as opposed to walking in what matters to the world. So we'll pick up in chapter 3 of Colossians, and we read... If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, seek the things that are above. But he isn't encouraging them to just kind of have this kind of wandering in God's general direction kind of pursuit of Him. It's, a, it's not an aimless pursuit. There is a specific goal here. And when Paul writes to seek the things that are above, it's literally keep seeking and it is not just a general pursuit. It is seeking to find. Okay, think about this. Raise your hand if you've ever misplaced your cell phone or your keys or your wallet. Raise your hand if you've ever done that before. Okay? Wow, there's a lot of you who are very, very, very organized because only a handful of hands that went up. Okay? I've misplaced those things. And so I'm like, I'm looking everywhere for them. Did you look everywhere? When you lost yours, did you look everywhere for them? You, look at, you, you looked until you found them, right? Tell me, did you look in the microwave for them? You didn't? How about, um, did you look on top of your house? Did you check on top of your house for your wallet? No? In the freezer, maybe? The bathtub. I hate it when I lose my phone in the bathtub. So, no, you didn't look in any of those places? Well, then you can't say you looked everywhere. But then, why would you look in those places? I mean, seriously. You're going to look in places that you hope to find it, right? You're going to look in the places that are most likely the places there are to be found. You're going to check the, the hamper. You're going to pull out the pair of pants you wore the day before. Up, oh, yep, there's my wallet. You're going to go to the closet, and you're going to check the coat that you wore the day before. Yep, there's my phone. That's where I left it. Or you're going to, you're going to be looking everywhere, digging for your keys and everything, and you're going to be like... Did I lock them in the car? Yep, that's what I did. Start to call your wife. Wait, no, I can't do that because my phone's in there too. 
So you look in the places that you are most likely to find them. Every location you search is a separate attempt to find the thing you lost. And so in the same way, Paul is saying, seek God in such a way that you know you are aiming to find him and encounter him more as a result of your pursuit. So think about it. When you sit down to read your Bible, when you sit down, is it with the, the intention in your heart, I'm going to know God more when I stand back up again as opposed to when I sat down? Or this morning, coming to church, as you're driving here this morning, or you sat down in here this morning, you and greet a few people, or even yesterday, maybe when you were kind of thinking about, oh yeah, tomorrow I go to church. Was the thought in your heart, I'm going to go and gather with believers, I'm going to go and I'm going to participate in praise to my Lord, and I'm going to go and hear the priest and taught word, because it is going to bring me closer to God or is it possible that you're here this morning because it's church day and you go to church on church day? For whatever reason you're here, we're thrilled you're here. Okay? But are you seeking Him or are you just doing religious stuff? Because let me tell you, if you're just casually attending church, you're not digging into the Word on your own, you're not obeying what you find there, if that is your definition of chasing hard after Jesus, you could be on top of your house looking for your car keys. And the thing is, is there's a lot more people in our churches like that than you would think. I was reading a Barna study recently, and it's a recent study, at least back in September, which is recent enough. And among other things, the study was about the centrality of Jesus in one's life. And so as studies do, they'll kind of start off with some, some feeler questions to see who they're dealing with. And so as they did that, four groups emerged. 22% of that, of that group of the people surveyed identified as ex-Christians. They'd been raised in church, but they were Christians no more. They were done with that. And so that was that set. 30% identified as lapsed Christians. They hadn't darkened the door of a church in the last six months. 38% of people surveyed were identified as habitual churchgoers. That's who we're going to focus on here in just a second. But I love the phrasing or the, the identification, habitual churchgoers. They didn't just immediately assume that they were Christians. They were just folks who attended church at least monthly. And here's the kicker. Their beliefs, they lacked the core beliefs of what we would call a follower of Christ. They were just regular attenders, monthly or more attendance. That's it. And then finally, there was a small group, 10%, who the study identified as resilient disciples. And what that meant was, one, they attended church at least monthly, but they didn't just attend, they engaged with their church body. So they either volunteered in some way, they were part of the community somehow, but they were engaged, not just filling a seat. They also trusted firmly in the authority of the Bible. God's Word was the, was the authority on their life. They were committed to Jesus, and they believed, they affirmed, that Jesus did in fact die, He was buried, and He rose again as payment for sin and defeating death. And they also expressed a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their individual faith. 
So when you hear that, you think, that's a, that sounds like a pretty much straight down the line, sold out believer. That's awesome. Now, out of everyone surveyed, apart from like the one group that's like, we're not Christians anymore, 100% of all the other three groups said, we are Christians. They identified as Christians. But when you looked at what they believed, they varied drastically. So I want to share with you real quickly. Again, we're just going to focus on the habitual churchgoer. And this is what I'm talking about, looking for your car keys on top of your house, aimlessly seeking. Only half of habitual churchgoers believed that living in relationship with Jesus was the only way to find fulfillment in life. Half. Half of them believed that following Jesus shaped their whole lives. And only half of them believed that their relationship with Jesus affected the way that they lived each day. Can we agree that they were being driven more by this world than they were the things that are in heaven? That they're not seeking to find, they're just doing religious stuff. That's all. They're just attending church, and that's it. And the thing is, is it showed up in their core belief. Remember, the study distinguished between them and their more faithful counterparts, not just by their lack of involvement, but also by their lack of core beliefs. It's why our churches are more and more being attended by people who are, they're okay with the massacre of unborn babies. They're okay with the redefining of marriage and sexuality. They're okay with the attacks on religious liberty that say, your faith is great, but it's yours, and so it's going to stay in your house or your church, and that's it. Now, here's the thing. We're thrilled that they're here. We're thrilled that they attend our churches, but this is the sad, sad part. They're leaving the same way they came in. They're not taking those beliefs out the door with them when they go. They're leaving unaffected. They're not seeking to find the things that are above. They're driven by the world system. But what are the things above? Ask an adult to define or describe heaven, and you'll get a list of answers. You'll get something like streets of gold. Uh, they'll describe it as, oh, it has pearly gates. And uh, they may give more sentimental descriptions like, reuniting with loved ones who have died or no more tears or no more pain no more suffering all of which are wonderful true descriptions of heaven but if you go and you ask a child to describe heaven you're going to get the same answer almost every time it's where God is that's heaven when I was preparing for this message, I was just sitting in my living room. It's actually just earlier last week. And I, was, and I just wanted just to make sure I wasn't just, just blanketly throwing that out there. Though I've asked this question a lot to a lot of kids. But I just called my daughter up to the living room. She was supposed to be in a room, cleaning room. There wasn't a whole lot of that going on. So I said, hey, Cor, come here. And I said, tell me real quick. Describe heaven for me. And she just said one word. That's all she said. She just said, God. God. That's it. 
This focal point of heaven is God. And that's what Paul is driving home to the Colossians here. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And see, whether or not these children that you might ask this of have actually made a profession of faith or not, even they know what the main thing is. It's God. Paul continues in verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are earth. And it sounds almost like he's beginning to repeat himself a little bit, but this is actually introducing a very powerful and important spiritual discipline, and that is the discipline of meditation. He's saying here, keep thinking or keep meditating on the things that are above. Keep meditating on what matters in heaven, not what matters on earth. And let what drives you be what matters in heaven, not what matters on earth. Meditate. Meditation. You hear those words? Do those words give you like any pause? Do they make you feel odd or awkward whenever you hear those words at all? meditate, meditation. If someone says, you should meditate on the word more, you should try that. If it's odd feeling, likely it's because you're influenced by the culture's definition of meditation, which is more of an Eastern origin, has more to do with focusing on nothing, on emptying your mind, maybe even sitting in weird poses and burning incense in your belly button and going, oh, Okay? That's, not, that's not meditation biblically. In fact, I would posit that that is more of an invitation to demonic activity into your life. Okay? What Paul is talking about here and what you read all throughout the scriptures, whether it's Old Testament or New, when David says, your, your law is my meditation day and night, or whether it's here when he's saying, keep thinking on or meditating on the things that are above, it has to do with filling one's mind, not emptying it, filling one's mind with the truths of God's word. And so I want to try something this morning. If you've never done this before, this will be something that maybe will help begin a practice in your life. But I want to, as a group, as together, I want to meditate on today's passage of Scripture. And if you would indulge me, I would like for you to close your eyes. And that is to keep you from becoming distracted by what's around you. There's nothing magical or anything about closing your eyes during this time. It's just like closing your eyes when you pray. Keep you from being distracted. Okay, and so if you've got your eyes closed, then there's, you're not missing anything. There's nothing happening up here that you're missing. Okay, I'm looking at you, Mount Pleasant, anywhere. The Hebrew word for meditate means to think or to ponder or even to muse to a musical notation. Uh, if you're interested in that, we can talk more about that after service. But right now, I want you just to focus on what we're reading. In a way, we're stepping into the classroom of the Holy Spirit. This is the time that we have for Him to teach us. And if we'll listen, if we'll let Him, He will bring to our minds things to help us grow and understand Him. So listen to these words. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Just think, what images come to mind? Don't answer. What do you see? Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Do you see the heavenly scene? 
You see the throne? The Son seated beside the Father. Is there anyone else there? Let the Holy Spirit bring to your mind other passages of Scripture you know that tell that answer. Yeah. What are they doing? Holy, 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 worthy, worthy is the Lamb. You guys can look back this way. I want to talk about what you're just thinking of. It was beautiful watching across. There's so many of you, even though your eyes were closed, so many of you were looking up. And there were smiles as you were picturing that scene. It brings a smile to my face. I can't quite, whenever I see, when I, when I imagine the throne room of heaven, I see a man. I can't quite picture because of just, in my mind, just the radiance emanating from the throne. I can't quite picture the Father, but I see the Son of Man sitting there beside Him, sitting in power and sitting in authority. That's what's happening with the one who is seated on the throne. He has authority. And He's surrounded by the worship and the praise and the thanksgiving of the saints and angels day and night. And Paul is saying here, if then you have been raised, that reality should become your reality here. The authority of God on the throne should become His authority on the throne of your life. And that worship, meaning the bowing down, the prostration, anywhere, it doesn't matter where you're looking up in the Hebrew or the Greek, worship always means the same thing, a bowing down. And that is our hearts to His will. And as we seek to find Him more, we will, our lives will be marked more by His authority. Our hearts bow to Him and our lives filled with praise and thanksgiving to Him. Those are the things I believe Paul is saying here when he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. It's about the throne, the one who's on it, the authority he has and the worship he's due. As you were thinking there, did anybody have a hard time? Uh, did anybody's minds begin to wander at all? Start to think about maybe what you have to do later on today, what's for lunch, what you didn't get done from yesterday. Because of everything that we kind of focus on here in this world, whether it's the media that we inundate ourselves with, whether it's all the cares that we surround ourselves with, whether it's the fleshly desires that just come from our own hearts and minds, it's hard a lot of times to be able to focus ourselves on any one thing for any amount of time. But that is why this is called a discipline. And it's something that just like a sport, you get better at the more you do it. Okay, I said batter. That's me. I get batter at basketball the more I do it. You get better at something the more you do it, okay? You get better at it. So you think about it. You sit down with that intention of your heart, Lord, I'm seeking to find you right now. And you open your Bible. Teach me. But don't just study. Don't just read. Because here's the thing. You might be doing it right now, and you might be thinking, gosh, I'm doing it. I'm being faithful. I'm reading his word, but I'm not getting anything from it. 
There's a, you know, maybe you're in a dry spell or something. This could be the missing piece. Meditation is a spiritual discipline of the believer where you make sure to just give time to think about the truths of his word. Remember, Jesus, when he said the Holy Spirit was coming, he said that he was going to come and he, he named off a list of ministries. He was going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. But he also said that he was going to teach you all things and to bring all things to your remembrance. You have to give him a chance to teach you. And those times of quiet, alone with him and his word, is that time. Teach me. Plan time in. When you study your Bible, when you plan time to read your Bible, and I hope you do that, I hope that there's a designated time each day where you say, nothing else is allowed to invade this time. If there isn't, stake down that claim. The world doesn't get this part of my day. Only God does. And then when you have that time, and you're going to find your focus is going to again drift to, I've only got so much time left because then I've got to get to the next thing. At that time, whenever that time ends, it ends. Fine, so be it. But God, this is your time right now. But make sure to chop off part of that time and leave it to think about what you're studying and ask Him to teach you. And the more you do that, the more you'll actually, you'll actually find you start to memorize the Scripture that you're studying. You might have been studying a passage of Scripture and there's a verse that stands out to you. It's just, boom, jumping off the page. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's just like, I just don't get this and I think this one passage is the one that would unlock it, but I just don't understand it. Park there. Stay there on that verse. Ask the Spirit, Lord, teach me. And then read each word asking the Spirit to teach you and to unlock the meaning of that passage to you. Ask Him to shine that Scripture on your life and where you need to apply it. What area of your life do you still hold back from Him that is territory that He should have under submission to His will? And the Spirit will bring ideas to your mind. He'll remind you of other Scriptures you've read. Go look those up. It's likely that they will help you better understand the passage you're in. That's why I mentioned a second ago, who else is around the throne? It's not mentioned in Colossians, but there are other passages of Scripture that tell us that that throne is surrounded by those worshiping God day and night. Giving us further insight into what it looks like to seek the things that are above. So that was just an example, and I hope that if you're not already doing something like that, even if it's imperfect, okay, imperfect is great, it's better than nothing. I am not great at meditation, but I, I try to make myself say, Lord, I don't just want to read tons and tons of chapters. I'm not going to read 10 chapters today and then give no time for your spirit to teach me. I'm going to read an amount that I can digest, and then I'm going to ask you, show me how I can apply this to my life. Teach me. And I hope that you'll try to incorporate that if you're not already into your quiet time with the Lord. But remember, in verse 2, he begins to make a contrast. He says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. In other words, let what matters in heaven be what drives you. That's what I kept hearing every time as I studied this more and more. Let what matters in heaven be what drives you, not what matters on earth. What matters on earth? It's really a simple answer. Me. I'm what matter. I'm the one, I'm the only thing that matters. 
I care about what is going on in my life and how it affects me. The people that I care about, the stuff I care about, the places I care about, the things that have to be done, how does it affect me? What interests me? What entertains me? What distracts me? What comforts me? You see, when we set our minds on the things that are above, we see heaven and the God-man on the throne. But when we allow our hearts to continually be tied to this world, we work to make it heaven and ourselves God. Earlier this month, I, I taught on James 4, and it was about this very topic. He said, you can't be friends with the world and friends with God Friendship with one is hostility toward the other. And he said, the thing that ties your heart to this world is your desire to please yourself. So I think, what drives me? What in this world drives Matthew? I think, well, earthly security. That's one. That's the thing I care about. You know, just having what I need here. Um, Self-care. Got to get that all-important me time in. Okay, it's all about me. And the desire to be well-esteemed, have a good name, that's important to me. And as I studied this and as I asked the Lord to show me these things, all I could hear in the back of my mind was, it's like the Lord's just saying, yeah, you know what that sounds like? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. I see where you're going, Lord. And John talked about that. He said, do not love the things, uh, do not love the world or the things in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't do both. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. It's all temporary. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And as I studied this, the Net Bible aptly commented, it commented in this way, it said, the person who thinks he has enough wealth and property to protect himself and ensure his security has no need for God or anything outside of himself. This is the person who loves the world, whose affections are all centered on the world, who has no love for God or spiritual things. In short, the more I have, the less I need God. The more I'm focused on myself, and this is the reason if you look back in that passage in James 4 when it says you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly so you can spend it on your pleasures, he says the whole reason that I don't give you the things you ask for is because it's fueled not by your desire to be closer to me, but by your desire to please yourself. And that's only going to tie your hearts to this world more. So, of course I'm not going to give you the things that's going to help feed that desire. We cannot be pursuing the things of the world more than we pursue God. And here's the thing. We have to pursue some things in this world, don't we? I mean, think about it. If you are studying your Bible 16 hours a day, literally, you get up in the morning, you're sleeping eight hours, you get up in the morning, and you read your Bible all day long, and then you go to bed, and you do that all day every day, is grocery money going to show up on your counter? No! God expects you to work. Now, could God do that? Yes. Okay, he could skip the money part and just make groceries appear in your cabinets. Okay, he could do that. He is God. He owns it all. But that's showing you, though, there are things in this world that we do have to take care of. The question I'm asking is, are you also seeking to find the Lord alongside that? Or are you just letting a one-sided pursuit pull you further from God and tie your hearts to this world? 
Are you seeking to find him or are you just doing religious stuff? Paul, he goes further in verse three, he says, you have died for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that the most, I mean, when you think about that phrase, is that not the most ridiculous phrase you've ever heard? You have died. I mean, could you imagine a crime scene detective showing up to like, and just telling the guy in like the taped outline on the ground, you died. No duh, he's dead. But you're not, you're still alive, but yet he's telling you, you died. And what he means by this, think about it, the people out here on this hill that are buried, do they care about what's going on in this world today? No. Are they worrying about any of it? No. They're not driven by it. They're not influenced by it. It does not have an effect on, any, on them anymore. And that's the same reaction that we're supposed to have toward the world. Paul is saying you are not supposed to be driven by the things that matter in this world. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is. That's what's supposed to drive you. That's why, again, I kept hearing all throughout this time, let your life be driven by what matters in heaven, not by what matters on earth. You died. That means that you, are, you have died to sin, the enticement of sin, according to Romans 6.2. I know that sin is still a temptation, but just as we saw over here, we're having these baptisms, and people you're seeing a picture of the death that they died along with Christ and the newness of life that they were raised up to live in. We have been raised, according to Colossians as well, in faith. And if we cling to Him, we don't have to put the chains of sin back on us. We can live above it. Whatever the area is that you struggle in, if you submit it to Him, you can have victory. He also says that you have died to the world's value system. He said that in Colossians 2. So, what drives this world should not be what drives a believer. You can put the chains back on if you want to, okay? But don't say that you fell into sin. Don't say that you just kind of got carried away by whatever, whatever pursuit or whatever distraction, okay? It all starts here. That's why this whole passage is about meditation, okay? We don't fall into sin. We fall in ditches, okay? We think about sin, and then we do it. What if instead, when the sinful thought came, we chose to live above it because we've been raised to, and we set our minds on things above and His authority, and our lives bowed to His will. You can put the chains back on, but why would you? Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for the love of Christ controls us. Our love for Him controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. You have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, tying their hearts to this world, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Set your mind on the things above. Because as believers, you have died and your life is hidden. If we're focused on what He wants, we'll walk as He walked. And it will have a disappearing effect on us and a revelatory effect on Him. In Colossians 2, Paul said, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Him? By faith. 
Next verse, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So just, he's saying, in the same way that you received Christ, that faith that enabled you to cry out to him, that I need you kind of faith, because you couldn't save yourself, that wasn't a one-time thing. Yes, you were saved, and that's a one-time thing. Salvation is not a process. It's an, it's an event. It happened. But then your life with Christ is a process, and that faith happens every day. You need Him every day. That's what He's saying in the same way. Walk in Him. And as we do that, suddenly the world doesn't see us as much. They just see Him. Imagine a snowy scene for a second, okay? Okay, something like this is what you were hoping to see on Christmas. I know my, uh, my five-year-old, she was very disappointed to learn that snow was more affected by weather patterns, not by the day of the year it was. And so when she learned, because she was so ready for snow on Christmas, and it was like, uh, it's not happening this year, baby, I'm sorry. And uh, she'll get over it. I know it's going to come. So you guys, if you like it, yay. If you don't, you'll get through it. Okay, but... When people are out playing in the snow, it gets disturbed. You can tell someone's been there. You imagine your front yard whenever you build a snowman, and it just it looks like a football team or a rugby team has just like played like three games in your front yard. I mean, think about it. Those postcards that you get, they have like a picture of a, of a house with a snowman in front of it, but the snow is just pristine. How did the snowman get there? Seriously, even if they were wheelbarrowing the snow in from the backyard, there'd still be something out there. No, you know what it looks like. You build a snowman in your front yard, and it looks like there's just been an army that's just marched through your front yard. And there's the snowman, you know, and it's got dirt and sticks and grass in it. But uh, because you've been scraping around here, you know, what little bit of snow you can get to make one. But the snow is disturbed, and you can tell people have been there. If you're walking through a field like this and several of you are going together, you might start to see several tracks all going together. But then eventually someone's going to get the bright idea. You know, what? we're all going the same way. What if we started walking in step with each other? And so then you watch and suddenly what looked like three or four sets of tracks. Now suddenly there's only maybe a couple sets of tracks and now there's just one. And it's as if the other however many people just disappeared. But they didn't. You just no longer see the effects of all of them. You see the effects of the one. That's supposed to be our life. We walk in Christ, and eventually there's only His effects that are witnessed in this world. But look at the picture one more time. It looks like one set of tracks. But there could have been three or four people who walk there. Understand, though, that is how, that's the effect of our life all the time. There's not multiple sets of tracks. There's only one. It's just a question of whose tracks are they? Is it your tracks? You going your own way? Because no one's, no one's going to get to enjoy Jesus from you when you're doing your own thing. They're not going to see two sets of tracks where it's like this one's the nice and orderly one and this one's like the crazy one going all over the place, okay? That's not going to happen. They're just going to see one set of tracks, yours, until you give him control in your life and you're seeking to find him and then making his reality in heaven a reality in your life that then the tracks that are seen are no longer yours, but his. Whose tracks are visible in your life today? Are they your tracks or Jesus's? Are you the one that's hidden? Or is he? 
And the way to tell is very simple. You just look at the actions and what is, what is driving those actions? Is it my concern for what matters in heaven? Or is it my concern for what matters here? Are you hiding in him? Paul continues in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear in glory. It says, Christ, who is your life. Is he, though? Is, is Christ your life, or is he just part of it? Remember, for half of that group, half of the habitual churchgoers, they, only half of them believed that relationship with Jesus was the only way to have fulfillment in life. The other half was like, yeah, you know, I can buy it elsewhere. Only half of them believed that living in relationship with Christ affected their day-to-day -day lives. The other half were like, eh. Christ wasn't their life. But here in this passage of Scripture, Paul is talking about someone for whom Jesus isn't just part of their life, but their whole life. Their love for Him, as it said in 2 Corinthians, their love for Him informs everything they do. Are they perfect? No. Because they still have this, okay? They're still in this world. And that won't change until the rapture, when Christ appears. That's what He's talking about here. But until then, their desire is to give Him more and more and more of their life. Are they perfect? No. But for those people, not being perfect is not a cop-out. When we say that so often it is, well, I have struggles like everyone else. Sure. And yes, there's forgiveness. And yes, there's, forgive there's cleansing. Praise God for that. But do you excuse your behavior or do you seek to give more of it over to God every day? Seeking so as to find. Today, I'm going to give it all I got. I'm going to look for God in this location specifically to find Him. I'm going to look for Him in this location specifically to find Him. And I'm going to grow because I am finding Him today. John tells us about this kind of lifestyle. He says in 1 John 2, And now little children abide in Him, live in Him, so that when He appears in the rapture, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. They're walking like he walked. The next chapter says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is because... The reason the world does not know us is because they did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we'll see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Paul's talking about in Colossians 3 about the life that is seeking to find God has a disappearing effect on them. John talks about whenever there, when the person is seeking, when the believer is seeking God, looking for his coming, that it has a purifying effect on his life. As God's children, we're to let our lives be spent hiding and seeking because one day Jesus is going to split the sky and say ready or not here I come 
And there's going to be believers out there who spent their time, they're believers, heaven is their home, but they spent their lives living for themselves. And when Jesus comes, according to John, it says that they're going to shrink back in shame, not wishing to be revealed whenever he comes. And they're going to be believers who are going to be like my three-year-old who whenever he plays hide-and-seek, he can't wait long enough for someone to find him. And he's shouting, here I am, from his hiding spot in the closet. If you're spending your life hiding in Christ and seeking to find him, when that sky splits open, you're going to be like, here I am, come and get me. The difference is how we decide to live today. You know, the other day, I'm, I'm wrapping up. The other day, in a podcast we recorded, Pam, she mentioned a quote that I found wonderful and enlightening. The quote was from a lady named Annie Dillard, and she said, how we spend our day is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our day is, of course, how we spend our lives. Meaning that you want to see a description of your life, just stack up the days. It's going to look the same. Your life is going to be a larger version of the majority of your days. Like just one day, how the majority of your days look. So how are you spending today? How are you seeking to find the Lord today? What if today we became more intentional in our pursuit of Jesus in our thoughts? What if today, instead of reacting to the things that are important in this world, instead of reacting to the impure thought or the unforgiving thought or the bitter thought or the covetous thought, what if it, according to 2 Corinthians 10, we took those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ and then we went the next step, setting our minds on the things above and we filled our mind and that area of weakness with the truth of God's word and we let him change us. Think about it. You'd be taking back territory in your life from your sinful flesh, from the, from the devil's realm here in this world. What is the area in which you struggle? Is it your temper? Is it making idols out of things or people? Is it impure thoughts? Is it how you treat others? Or do you struggle with authority? What is the area in which you struggle? Seek God's heart on the matter in His Word. Ask His Spirit to teach you in how you can apply His truth to your, to your life. Ask Him for grace and strength to do that. Here's the thing. When you study God's Word, know this. It isn't enough to just enjoy studying His Word. It's great you like reading the Bible. That's awesome. But Jesus is more than an intellectual pursuit. He is God to be obeyed and worshipped. Are you doing what you see there in the Word? That's why I believe in 2 Peter 1, whenever he says, add to your faith virtue and then knowledge. Virtue meaning to do right. I've always wondered, why doesn't it say, add to your faith knowledge and then apply what you know? No, because it's a commitment to do right. And then, as soon as God shows you what He wants, immediate application. It's a heart thing. It's a desire to honor Him. Are you doing that? Are you seeking to find Him in that way? And here's the thing, and this is a, one of the last, here's the things. As I taught a couple of Wednesday nights ago on James in this, on the James 4 passage that I mentioned earlier in the service, God says, for the one who is proud, to that one I'm opposed. Basically to the one who says, I don't really need you, I got this covered. He says he's opposed to that person. You can keep struggling it out. Have fun with that. 
but for the one who is humble, the one who recognizes their need and the fact that, yes, God, you know what? I really do want to please myself. I really, there's a lot of things here that draw my heart to this world, but I know I need you and I want you more. Help me to want you more. God says, I've got grace for you. I've got grace for you. Just keep coming. Keep seeking me. I'll help you with that. But you've got to take the step. Okay? You don't get to experience grace until you actually do something for it. Not for it, but about it. Okay? Grace is experience. It's not just head knowledge. What does God want me to do? I'm going to do this. It's hard. And there's grace. And I keep stepping forward in Him. And there's more grace. Walking in Him. Seek to find Him. Let your life be hidden in Him each day. Hide and seek. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Find us at www.mpbc.church and on Facebook at facebook.com mpbcnc. Have a great day, and we hope you'll join us again next week.